In the night visions of the prophet Daniel, we find this in the seventh chapter, beginning at verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And now we open to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Amen. The forward progress of God's kingdom in the world, to kingdom-minded Christians at least, it often seems slower and more fragile and more meandering than we'd really like to see. Once the Holy Spirit's managed to tame and conquer our own rebel hearts by the grace of regeneration, once He's impressed upon us Jesus' sovereign reign as rightful King of men and nations, We'd very much like to see the rapid, straight-line development of that kingdom, wouldn't we? Don't the inspired words of Solomon in the 72nd Psalm begin to resonate within us as he contemplates the covenant promises of a coming Davidic king infinitely greater than he, of that coming 
king Solomon writes, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Conquered by this gracious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we yearn for the day when the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We long for straight-line victory. We long for victory on every front. The very thought of this glorious kingdom taking root among the nations, the thought of His will being done on earth as it is in heaven, it inspires us. It energizes us. But the actual pattern of the Gospels advanced through history, for the most part, hasn't been that of a well-aimed bowling ball relentlessly knocking down all the pins of opposition. No, the progress of the kingdom has resembled more the progress of a pinball in the pinball machines of a generation ago. When the Gospel goes out conquering and to conquer, it meets with hard opposition in some places and a warm welcome in others. So the pattern that we see, both of gospel proclamation and church extension in the New Testament and beyond, the pattern is that of a bouncing of the gospel from place to place. The gospel bumps and rolls and keeps on moving, which accounts for the movement of missionaries from place to place. Should Paul stay in Lustra, where he's just been stoned and left for dead? Should he and Silas stay in Philippi, where they've just been beaten and jailed? No. They move on and carry the good news with them. Those who bear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ are wise to count the cost in advance, and then having started... We need to develop and we need to exercise all the spiritual resilience the gospel mission requires of us. Being filled with the Spirit provides the buoyancy needed to counterbalance and overcome all the disappointments, all the hardships of the work of preaching and establishing churches. The progress of the gospel among the nations takes us occasionally into some pretty strange and unexpected places. But the operation being in the capable hands of an all-wise, all-powerful king, still it's progress. We noticed at the beginning of chapter 8 that it was a school of apostolic preaching that Jesus had gathered around him. These 12 students weren't here under Jesus' wing merely to learn, but eventually also to do. After Jesus, in chapter 7, forgave that sinful woman in the house of Simon the Pharisee, Luke tells us that soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the 12 were with him. And so too, for that matter, were a number of women contributing to the apostolic school out of their own private means. The young disciples' job description in this earliest phase of training was merely to be with him. They were to watch him, to learn from him. 
All through chapter 8, it's been Jesus preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. He's been the one demonstrating its actual presence among us by all these various signs and wonders taking place at his hand. They, the twelve, just watch and learn. They take notes. They remember what they saw, what they heard. But now, as the ninth chapter opens, a new phase of their apostolic training begins. Jesus moves them out of the classroom and into the laboratory. They are graduating from learning to doing, from hearing the gospel of the kingdom to actually proclaiming and demonstrating it themselves. Borrowing the imagery the Apostle Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, what we have in today's passage is God's King, the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning to send out his royal ambassadors who carry with them the terms of peace between God and men. It was of the apostles and those like Timothy who supported them that Paul writes, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That was the apostolic role. The the apostle was Christ's ambassador. Now, an ambassador, by definition, represents the interests not of himself, but of the one who sends him. The one who sends him, therefore, if he's wise, sends him fully prepared, fully briefed and ready for the diplomatic mission. In this case, ready for the gospel mission. In the balance of our time today, let's consider what went into Jesus' preparation of these ambassadors of God's kingdom, the kingdom of which he himself is king. Their education in his school kept these 12 young men on their toes, just as I'll try to do for you today. So our four points follow this acronym, T-O-E-S, TOES. The first aspect of the disciples' preparation as ambassadors proclaiming the kingdom of God, the, the first aspect is their training, their training. Ambassadors who faithfully represent their sending sovereign naturally need to know certain things. Beginning with their sovereign himself, if they're going to represent him, they need to know him. They need to know his person, his priorities, his goals and objectives, his disposition toward friend and foe. They need to know his capabilities and his expectations. How else could an ambassador speak with any authority? As another apostle, the apostle Paul would later write, we have the mind of Christ. And Paul is speaking not merely as a Christian, but as an apostle. Beloved, unless you have the mind of Christ, you cannot speak for Christ. You cannot represent him. It was the mind of Christ the disciples had been learning as they shadowed him for the better part of a year already. 
every new sermon Jesus preached, every new eyewitness experience of his power and grace. Even every private discussion they had either showed these young men something new or else reinforced previous lessons concerning the kingdom of God. Their master, Jesus, trained them formally. He trained them informally. He trained them during class hours and after class hours. He trained them by word and by example, in the house and along the way, when they lay down and when they rose up. Ultimately, he trained them so well that by the time Peter and John, in Acts chapter 4, stood before the Sanhedrin, having just delivered to that court their ascended king's ultimatum, that there is, no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. After doing this, Luke immediately proceeds to note this. Now when they, the Sanhedrin, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Fully trained, disciples become like their master. They become like him in knowledge, certainly, but not only in knowledge. We become like him in confidence as well. And wisdom. And compassion. And love. And every other Christian grace. That's the goal, the learning objective of all Christian training. When we're trained at the feet of Jesus, the mind is renewed, but the whole person is transformed. So when he sends them out, he sends them trained for the mission. He also sends them organized for it, trained and organized. Luke doesn't mention this particular aspect of their preparation, but Mark's gospel in chapter 6 verse 7 points out their task organization, the very first thing. Mark says, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He organized them into teams of two. Not only does this arrangement lend itself to mutual support and encouragement when the going gets tough, not only does iron sharpen iron so that each of them could sharpen the other in the proclamation, not only are two, are, better, are two better than one because they have a good return for their labor, all those things are true. But remember, wherever they go, these young men are bearing testimony. Wherever they go, they're bearing solemn testimony concerning the kingdom of God. These aren't traveling storytellers or poets or minstrels or philosophers. They're not slick young people trying to sell some bright new idea. Underlying everything else, the apostles are witnesses. They're eyewitnesses. And the facts of their testimony concerning the kingdom of God have to be confirmed. Two or three witnesses, according to God's law, is enough to establish those facts. 
thoughts. Organized this way, six trained teams of two went through the villages of Galilee to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Which brings us to a third aspect of the disciples' preparation. He's trained them for the mission. He's organized them into teams, and now he equips them. He equips them. But the first thing you notice about their equipment is that they're traveling exceedingly light. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Don't even pack a spare shirt. Why is this? Well, for one, things have a way of getting their hooks into us, don't they? Things do. They find their way into our wallets, then into our closet space or the garage. They find their way into our calendars and appointment books because first of all we have to buy them. Then we have to maintain them or pay someone else to maintain them. Then we have to store them or pay someone else to store them. Finally, we take a financial loss by selling them again on Craigslist or just giving them away to charity. All this extraneous stuff that I own, for as long as I own it, has this way of owning me. But worse than that, the stuff we carry around with us can actually get in the way of the mission. Packing along a lot of stuff would have slowed these teams down and they've got ground to cover. Miles and miles of it. These are men with a schedule to keep. Now this first apostolic preaching tour wouldn't be very lengthy. Later ones they took were going to be longer. But clearly, there's going to be some overnight lodging involved. Even though it's a short trip. So wherever you go with this kingdom proclamation, you find yourself a worthy home in that village, find hosts who are sympathetic to the cause of the gospel you preach, and then stay with them. Stay with them. It's the perfect arrangement, and it's perfectly efficient for everyone. Because you're going to be blessed with the lodging that they offer, and they're going to be blessed with the preaching and healing that you offer. So for the mutual blessing of it, stay with them. What more do you need? What these teams lack in logistical stuff to cart along, the Lord Jesus more than supplies in the things that really do matter. Ambassadors of God's kingdom don't need to carry an extra suitcase along with them, do they? What ambassadors need to carry along with them is authority, the authority of the sovereign on whose behalf they speak. So how does he equip them? He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He gave them power and authority. 
Maybe people are going to sit through a good sermon on the kingdom of God, or maybe they won't. Maybe they'll just dismiss the proclamation of the king's message with the standard gospel parley of the lost. Well, it was a fine message, but that's your opinion, they might say. That may be good for you, but it's not good for me. My God, they might say, my God wouldn't send sinners to hell. My God wouldn't do this or that thing that offends them. My God, they'll say, is a God of love and forgiveness and saving grace to everyone. And when the unbeliever's done painting his portrait of the Santa Claus God of his imagination, a flimsy thing made in his own image and drawn according to his own personal tastes and preferences. Then the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ is fully equipped to say, well, thanks for sharing your opinion. But tell me, has your God ever once restored a man's life to him by healing the sick? Has your God ever demonstrated his authority over the demons by casting them out of the poor wretches whose lives are made hell on earth because of them? Words without power are just words. Words without power are just your opinion. So in order to confirm the kingdom message, he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Thus trained and organized and equipped, the Lord Jesus Christ then sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He sends them and they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. In just this way, then, the Lord's disciples became the Lord's apostles. The students are sent and become the king's ambassadors. Oh, it's still very early on in the process of making apostles of them. What we have here in today's passage is a first testing of the waters. What we have here is a dipping of the toe into the bracing waters of kingdom proclamation. How long they're gone isn't told us, but four verses later in verse 10, they're reporting back again to Jesus. Many more will be the gospel excursions these young apostles make in ever-widening circles to ever-widening audiences until endued with the promised Holy Spirit, bringing to their remembrance all they'd seen and heard they bring this eyewitness testimony of God's kingdom from Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. To the end of the earth. Because to this king, now gloriously risen from the dead, now ascended the throne of heaven, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him.